It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Every Day Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Every Day Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, little green men taught me how to do the bop. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about life Beyond the Bounds of Earth. Yeah, which we've talked about in a couple of episodes before, but we're specifically talking about how do we search for life and and be sure that we found it and that it definitely came from capital somewhere, capital else. Uh, yeah, we're not just talking about alien life, but alien life that we definitely didn't put there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so w- this is important because of multiple things. One, we're very curious about whether or not there is life uh, outside of our planet. The odds are pretty good considering the vastness of the universe that life also exists somewhere else. Whether it exists somewhere within our detectable range of uh, view is another question. 
And then we also are hoping to maybe even learn more about the origins of life on Earth, uh, particularly from any indications of life on our, our nearby neighboring planetary and, and moon bodies, right? right? Yeah, I mean, one thing that would be interesting would be if you go to other objects in the solar system and you find life forms there that are based in DNA, you could say, aha, Ooh. this may be a, a piece of evidence for the theory that DNA precedes the evolution of or the origin of all life. Exactly. Right. The DNA is a necessary component. You didn't have it the other way around. You didn't have life that it eventually got DNA as a molecule. But there's another way you could read finding life with DNA, which is that what if it just came from some other DNA based life? Right. What if on um, what if we also uh, thought we had discovered the smoking DNA gun mm-hmm. on a surface such as Mars? Only to find out, much to our chagrin later on, that whoops-a-daisy, it actually hitched a ride on the very probe we sent there and, in fact, came from, you know, uh, Dubuque. Dubuque? Why Dubuque? Just random place. Well, then let's say it came from Peoria. Okay. (laughs) Or Kalamazoo, Michigan. No matter where it comes from, this is more than just a problem of, like, corrupting our data samples and our senses of childlike wonder. Uh, you know, if we bring Earth life along with us to a place, how can we be sure that we won't be committing unintentional genocide on whatever life forms might happen to be native to that place to begin with? Right. So this this is sort of the problem of something like kudzu here in the southeast, right? Mm-hmm. Kudzu is not native to the southeast United States, but anyone who has spent any time, particularly north of Atlanta, is very familiar with kudzu. It's this creeping vine. It was brought in specifically to try and help uh, curtail erosion on hillsides. Uh, I know this because the place where I grew up absolutely covered in kudzu. It you took know, over. One place I very often see it, especially in my hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee, when I go back there, is in uh, like former construction sites mm-hmm. and digging sites, mm-hmm. places where there have been uh, large large sections of earth carried away by earth movers mm-hmm. or flattened, then there will, you know, years later be kudzu all over it. I specifically Ugh. remember a telephone pole outside of Oakwood, Georgia, which is where I grew up, that uh, because of the way the vines had grown up the pole and along some of the wires, it looked like Godzilla. And so we called it kudzilla. And, uh, but <laughs> nice. the, the point that I'm making here is that kudzu is, uh, is an invasive species uh, that has killed a lot of the native plants by covering them up. You know, it's competing for the same resources, right? Mm-hmm. And so, it's really effective at growing. Exactly. So the fear is that we could potentially bring something from Earth to another planet where it would be uh, capable of adapting to those conditions and edging out any sort of indigenous life. Yeah, and this is the subject that we're going to be talking about today. It typically goes under the name uh, interplanetary contamination for the process. And we're also going to be talking about the process of trying to prevent this, which is often known as planetary protection. Uh, Yeah, and sort of like a microbial version of the Prime Directive. Uh, The Prime Directive, of course, being in Star Trek, the thing where you you say that you will do no harm. You will not interact with with other stuff out there, with other life forms out there, unless it's really important or there's a chick you want to get up with. Right, exactly. (laughs) Unless the plot calls for it. Right, yeah, right, 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 right totally, right. totally. But so, but on a microbial level, you know, that's basically the same thing. Yeah, so we're not talking about bringing life forms like 
multicellular complex organisms like it's rabbits like and the, rhinos. Yeah, the, uh, the probe isn't going to be uh, having an infestation of badgers somewhere right. in it. Uh, I mean, honey badgers <laughs> are are a real problem. Especially in Far Cry Four, but maybe water bears, though. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There you go. But the, no, we're we're specifically talking about microbial life, uh, and, and or or things that aren't even life yet, but would be very interesting if we were to find them in a place other than Earth. Like, sure. Uh, like uh, like what they call organic molecules. Right. Mm-hmm. The the building blocks that indicate perhaps the presence or uh, uh, the one one time presence of life. It may be that. The things we discover on other planets aren't life, but are rather remnants of what used to be life. Oh, uh, sure. Or, or, you know, right. All that DNA stuff that we were talking about uh, earlier in this very episode and also for a couple episodes before this, uh, you know, either amino acids or nucleobases, nucleotides, whatever you want to call them, that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, or I mean, something as simple as methane. Right. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Something that, that that's considered an organic molecule. Exactly. So interplanetary contamination, it actually works both ways. We'll talk about that uh, a little bit more later on. But there is like forward contamination and backward contamination. And that essentially means are we taking stuff to another planet or are we bringing stuff back to our planet from somewhere else? Uh, but interplanetary contamination is a big deal. I mean, it's something that lots of smart people have talked about. And in fact, there are agreements between nations not to do that thing. <laughs> uh, the Outer Space Treaty, which we have talked about multiple times on this show, right? We've talked about Outer Space Treaty uh, for, uh, as far as it goes with the idea of can you own property in space? Right. The idea that the moon is no one's property you, just because you put a flag there. The answer US. is yes, you can if you buy it from me. Right. If you're if if you're not if you're if you're not too upset about handing money over to a total scam artist, you too can own landscape on the moon. Uh so for the Outer Space Treaty actually has a section that covers the idea of interplanetary contamination and it specifically reads uh that uh States parties to the treaty shall pursue studies of outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, and conduct exploration of them so as to avoid their harmful contamination and also adverse changes in the environment of the Earth resulting from the introduction of extraterrestrial matter and, where necessary, shall adopt appropriate measures for this purpose. Now, that's specifically backwards contamination. Well, it mentions both. It mentions forward and backward contamination. So it it says that uh, we, we will avoid quote, their harmful contamination, they're referring to the moon and other celestial bodies. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then it also says, don't don't mess up Earth when you come back, which right. is what happens, of course, in Dawn of the Dead or not Night of the Living Dead. Yes, exactly. A, uh, a space probe returning from Venus comes into the atmosphere and then. Oops. And, and then hilarity ensues. Yeah. Yeah. And some sleepy people decide to have a party. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Uh, in addition, the Committee on Space Research, also known as COSPAR, uh, has created the COSPAR Planetary Protection Policy using the Outer Space Treaty as sort of their starting point. And here in the United States, NASA has a division that's dedicated to this pursuit as well. It's called the Planetary Protection Office. Its slogan is, all of the planets, all of the time. <laughs> uh, which, you know, isn't ambitious at all. You know, like, no no pressure there, NASA. You can fool all of the planets some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the planets all the time, but you can't fool all the planets all the time. Also, it just reminds me of that of that uh, uh, hyperbole and a half quote: "Just clean all the things, like clean all the planets." 
Yes, but so we mentioned there are two main types of planetary contamination. It can be either going out or coming in. Yeah, so the going out part uh, we'll talk about in more detail soon. The coming back part, uh, that's that's something that's already happened, right? We brought samples back from the moon. Sure. From, I mean, if you believe NASA that we've been there. Well, I mean, I want to put you in a very uh, very frustrating scenario. Imagine you have just been to outer space. Right. And you made it back to Earth safely, and you're like, oh, my God, I went to outer space. I want a I explored space. I, I like, survived. Yeah, like, I want some mac and cheese. I want to hug my dog. Like, right. No, nope. You are going to sit in a container and wait for a long time. <laughs> for, like, a month. Yeah, so in the Apollo missions, uh, the returning equipment and astronauts had to undergo a 30-day quarantine period after – each time after each mission, just to make certain that nothing brought back would be harmful to life here on Earth because he can't be too careful. You know, it was pretty people were pretty sure that there wouldn't be anything incredibly dangerous. But you don't know. It may be yeah. that the soils would have contained some sort of uh, highly dangerous carcinogen or something. Yeah. Better safe than sorry. Yeah. I, though I, This is funny. I mean, I what I just said was based on what the Apollo astronauts had to do. What what is the process now? So let's say you return from the ISS. Do you have to go through quarantine today? I'm sure there's. A, I know there's a period of observation, but it's like a couple of days. Ah. Um, yeah. I don't think it's as long as 30 days because you're not typically bringing anything back with you that's extraterrestrial in nature, yeah. right? You are aboard the ISS. Yeah. Now there might be some some pretty far out people on the ISS, but they aren't so far out as to be not of this earth. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and and as long as you're not demonstrating like a clear case of of space madness, <laughs> oh, that just takes me back to Ren and Stimpy. Exactly. Uh, with the creamy nougaty center. <laughs> so uh, so uh, the obviously I sense the basis of a good creepy pasta. Uh, <laughs> obviously, uh, we'd also love to get our hands on any kind of life that originated from outside of the Earth. But if we were to do so... Maybe not our hands. Our we, grimy, grimy hands. Our metaphorical hands. Yeah, Good grief. Millennials our are so literal. complex instrumentation hands. Right. So we'd love to be able to take possession of life <laughs> that originated from outside of our, our own planetary uh, uh, home. Yeah. Right? But that obviously could come with a substantial risk, uh, lots of different risks. It, we could, in fact, uh, have the opposite of what we were talking about earlier where, you know, uh, if we were to bring something from Earth to another planet and it were to uh, to to really multiply un- in an uncontrollable fashion, same thing could potentially happen bringing something from another planet back here on Earth and that could be bad. Yeah. So – uh, most people say that the the obvious solution for that is to use a system of containment that you never allow whatever it was you brought back from another planet to escape a controlled contained you know uh facility so uh which makes perfect sense you, you know you wouldn't be like hey we found Martian daisies. Let's plant it on Earth and see what happens. 
You Let's want put that it next to all of our major food crops. <laughs> There's a school right down the road that would really use some uh, some beautification. Excellent. <laughs> yes. Oh, the Martian daisies are eating all the small animals. That's probably not anything to worry about, you know. And then you get some horrible science fiction film. Uh, and there are a couple of different scenarios. We sort of mentioned uh, the the different ideas. One is that we send a probe out to uh, another celestial body. And we end up getting some sort of uh, result that suggests that, yes, we've found life or we found organic compounds that suggest the presence of life only to find out that, oops, we may have brought that with us. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the really scenarios. frustrating uncertainty. Yeah. yeah. And it's something that's happened. It's not like this is this is new this or, or, or just a theory or hypothetical. Hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then there's also the scenario that. We've, we mentioned before, we send a probe there. It brings some sort of organic material, life forms, to a distant body. And then they flourish there and edge out any life or eradicate any signs of life on that planet. And then we never know if life was there or not. Uh, yeah, maybe our microbes are like the the Europa version of the alien xenomorphs. Maybe like everything that they exhale is just acid and it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, wouldn't it be fun to find out? Uh, <laughs> then scenario three, of course, is that we send some sort of probe or mission someplace. It comes back and then we get uh, space mono. And there's a George Romero film that breaks out as a result, right. which, while it sounds groovy, is probably not something you actually want to live through. I mean, you want to live through it, but you don't want to experience it. Right. It's preferable overall. If, right. if it's going to happen. If it's going to happen, you maybe, want to live through maybe it. Maybe you want to live through it. I don't know. I mean, it really depends. I mean, season two of Walking Dead, you probably just wanted to be like, just end it. I, I didn't want to live through that. Yeah. OK, so we've got this concern that we've articulated now that uh, there there are multiple reasons we might want to be concerned about microbial life being transported from one planetary body or solar system object to another. Right. Um, and we can all pretty much agree that that's something that could possibly happen and that we should be concerned about. But how concerned about it should we be? Well, I mean, we've already seen people say we cannot allow something like the Curiosity rover to make its way over to locations that are theoretically at least within its its range of roving uh, to check out potential water because – of these very concerns, right? Mm-hmm. Because so, we know that there's stuff on the Curiosity and that we d- we don't want. Yeah, the, the Curiosity wasn't completely sterile. Mm-hmm. Right. So because of that, we cannot allow the Curiosity rover to come in contact with a water supply and potentially contaminate it. So it's very frustrating because you, you could see where the water is and the rover is within range of it. And if you could just get over there and and do some measurements, legally speaking, you might even be able to tell if there is life or or evidence of past life within that area where there's water. I mean, that seems like that's going to be our best uh, our best option of finding something close to the surface of Mars. But we can't do it. So that's one reason people are concerned about it, because we've already kind of seen the limitation of what we're able to do with the tools that are on Mars right now. Uh, there's also a pressing concern that the agreements we talked about, that official space treaty, that's an agreement between nations, between governments. Mm-hmm. It's not an agreement between private industries. As uh, many wannabe asteroid miners have frequently reminded us. Yeah. So private industry isn't beholden to those same restrictions and could potentially go and 
muck everything up for everybody. <laughs> uh, yeah, the private space industry, by the way, is poised to get huge or huger, like soon. Um, you know, we've talked about that asteroid exploration thing before and about Mars One before, and mm. I'm pretty sure that Mars One is super defunct at yeah. this point. Um, but an announcement from SpaceX this very week, uh, the last week of April, uh, indicates that private Mars exploration in general, is certainly not dead. Uh, Elon Musk really wants to send an unpersoned Dragon 2 spacecraft, which is the upcoming descendant of the Dragon 1 spacecraft, to Mars in 2018. 2018, y'all. That's like so soon. Yeah. Um, and he's he's putting the pressure on because in 2018, Mars will be just 35.8 million miles away from Earth. And that is the closest we will be to the red planet uh, between now and and 2035. Mm. Uh, so, so yeah, so, so 2018 might be when private spacecraft touches down on yeah. Mars. Hat tip, by the way, to Robert Lamb and How Stuff Works Now, a new video and podcast series from How Stuff Works, uh, for, for, uh, for covering that particular topic. Uh, yeah, I've actually heard that, uh, and I don't know if this was a joke or not, but someone on Twitter said, did you know Elon Musk wants to retire on Mars? And I was thinking, <laughs> Is this real? And I never bothered to actually check, but it totally sounds like something he would say, even if it were just in even jest. Even if it were kind of a joke. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. So the, the point here is that if we are going to legislate private companies about this kind of stuff, we should probably get on that like yesterday. Yeah, because obviously these concerns we're talking about, if you want to answer some pretty big questions like – was there ever life on Mars? Is there still life on Mars and other celestial bodies? We're using Mars because that's probably the one that we're going to be hitting first. But there are other like there are there are certain uh, other moons in the solar system that are also potential uh, targets for for where we think life is most likely to exist if it exists elsewhere in our solar system. Um, but can we? get some legislation in there so that we make sure we don't destroy that evidence before we have a chance to actually look for it. Well, this sort of leads us to the question of what we can actually do to prevent it. I mean, just short of not ever going to any other <laughs> objects in the solar right. system. Uh, if we're, if we're going to be right. Yeah. Uh, if we're going to be conjugating with other uh, objects in our solar system, exploring yeah. them or even colonizing them, is it just inevitable that we're going to contaminate them with our microbes or are there steps we can take to reasonably uh, uh, to with reasonable confidence say that we're not doing that? Uh, right, because because legislation is lovely, but the practical scientific end has to come up with a practical scientific way of making that go. Yeah. And here's the thing. Spoiler alert, folks, because I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right now, there is no way that we can be 100 percent certain that we can explore and certainly not colonize another planet or moon without contaminating it to some degree. Womp the, womp. Yeah, the real question is, how bad would it be? We don't know. But <laughs> if you're going to be bringing, like especially for colonization, if you're going to be bringing a whole bunch of stuff with you that has organic material involved in it, like food and, you know, us, then uh, not us in this room. I'm not going. But, you know, human beings. Well, well. That's colonization. Maybe we should take a step back first and yeah. look at exploration. Yeah, sure. I mean, even even just a rover, uh, as we are apt to send out to places we have not been before. Um, and 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 you know, so 
when when we want things to not have bacteria on them, we usually sterilize them, and that seems like a pretty good thing. Like every time I go in to get another facial tattoo, like you know, there's there's some kind of sterilization system in place, yeah. right? We can somebody do... blows the cockroach parts off of the needle. Yeah, yeah, and and we can we can do we can blow the cockroach parts off of rovers as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and I was... remind me not to go to your tattoo artist. <laughs> I, so I was wondering how space agencies do this, and I looked it up. Actually, NASA has a page that's pretty interesting where it explains its own strategies uh, before uh, for sterilizing equipment specifically bound for Mars through the Mars Exploration Rover programs, and that would include uh, Spirit and Opportunity. So objects we put on Mars, we had to sterilize them before they went. How did we do that? Uh, so this is funny. They had a mandate to carry, quote, no more than 300,000 bacterial spores on any surface from which the spores could get into the Martian environment. And just imagine that some poor schmo's job. Who's got to count them. Right, Seven, like 299,999. Nine. <laughs> oh, man. But come that, on. That's interesting. The mandate is not perfectly sterile. It's no more than 300,000 spores. Well, it's just like, you know. No box of cereal is completely without rat hair. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah, you got to have a little, you know, one part per million. That's not so bad. Yeah. So they've got that mandate, but how do they actually accomplish it? Well, while the spacecraft are being assembled, first of all, technicians are going to be constantly wiping down surfaces with alcohol solution. Uh, this is sort of stage one. You just you're constantly wiping alcohol on them to sterilize the surfaces kill whatever microbes are there. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they, they also conduct microbiology samples to make sure there aren't too many organisms present on the surfaces at multiple stages along the, the construction of these spacecraft. And then they take all of the heat-tolerant components, which aren't all of the components, but it's, you know, a lot of the outer ones. Sure. The heat-tolerant components, and they heat them to 110 degrees Celsius or 230 degrees Fahrenheit. And then they've also got a, a central box containing the rover's computer and main electronic components, and that's kept sealed, and uh, all the ventilated air that goes through it is heavily filtered to make sure that if you've got any microorganisms inside the electronics box, they don't get out right, once they're, they're on the other they're planet. They're in little, little microbe jail. Yeah. Microbe jail forever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, no. And then uh, they also <laughs> say that on, on this mission, they went out of the way to prevent any non-sterilized part of the launch vehicle from accidentally getting to Mars, which I thought was interesting. That This is something you'd actually have to worry about. But they did because – so think about it like this. As the rocket launches, it frequently it, – uh, at several stages has to separate from a stage of its launch vehicle. Right. You know, it discards part of the rocket and throws it away. And the last part of the rocket that it discards, the third stage of the Delta launch vehicle, is going to be on the trajectory with the spacecraft heading out of orbit, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you just left it like that, the part of the ro the last part of the rocket that it separates with would basically be on a course to follow the spacecraft to Mars. Mm -hmm. And so instead what they do is they start their journey going the wrong way, not totally the wrong way, but not quite on a direct on a direct trajectory to huh. hit Mars so that the uh, if they separate and the uh, the object follows them, the launch vehicle part will float off in that direction. And then after 10 days, they make a course correction to meet Mars in its orbit. Hmm. That's good, because it reminds me of that picture of the rocket taking off and the little frog. Yeah, it's at attached attached mm -hmm. to the rocket, and and we could have ended up with the frog on Mars. 
Right. But not with this program. No, no. Right. That that frog is lost in space. Now, apparently for some past probes like the Viking lander, they had an even higher standard of sterility, which was pretty much actual like full sterilization. They they would blast the whole thing in a high temperature oven for several days. Uh, Yeah. The numbers that I read were one hundred and eleven point seven degrees Celsius for 30 hours. But the electronics on the most recent probes probably could not stand up to that. No, they're not 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 quite the same caliber as the ones from the Viking. Yeah. So the we, we go through actually less rigorous sterilization on planetary rovers and probes than we used to. Right. Now, here's the thing is that. Not all, not all the stuff we've sent out has been completely sterilized. Right. Uh, and the, even when you your sterilization method is effective, and you're reasonably sure that you're beneath, below that three hundred thousand bacterial spores uh, metric, mm-hmm. there's it doesn't it doesn't magically clean off all the organic carbon molecules that may or may not be attached to that material. Right. Those could still be on the probe. Which, if there are enough of them, it could be enough to throw off our our uh, you know instrumentation and give you a false positive. Mm-hmm. So there's still the possibility that stuff that isn't actually life, but rather it are the building blocks for life here on Earth, could hitch a ride. And even if you've done the sterilization approach, they could throw things off because it's it's the same sort of stuff as what you're looking for when you're doing these particular types of experiments. Right. Right. Now, one of the ways we could try to limit this possibility uh, is to go to these places but not actually land on them, Hmm. to do essentially flybys, orbits, that kind of stuff, look at the various bodies from a distance. Um, And the problem with that method, of course, is that you can see a lot of things from a distance that indicate (laughs) the building blocks for life. But unless you're catching yeah. space people going to the space mall on your <laughs> camera, you're probably not close enough to actually get a the, real idea. The problem with not landing on a planet is that you're not landing on it. Yeah. Right. You're not able to physically interact with the environment and either verify or or discard a hypothesis, right? Like without actually landing and taking samples and, and testing those samples, you can just make a kind of – Educated guests. And even then – It's kind of like saying I want you to meet my friend but you can only drive around the block around right, his house. Right. Now, you might you might see Which is that – creepy when you think about you it. You might see that lights are on in the house and you may draw the conclusion, well, that per- you know Joe's friend is probably home. Or you might see that all the lights are off and you think Joe's friend is either not home or is asleep. You know? <laughs> like, essentially, <laughs> right. Yeah. right? Like there's certain things – there's certain conclusions you can draw but you're not 100 percent certain of any of them. Yeah. Right. Same thing is, problem- and, is problematic with this. Unless you honk your horn really loud and Joe's friend comes out of the house and right. shakes his fist at you. Right. If you were to honk your horn at at, uh, at Mars or one of the – the moons out there that we suspect could potentially house life and little microbes came out and formed a giant like emoji like picture, <laughs> then then it's that chicken. would work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would work. That would be something. Somehow, I don't <laughs> think that's a highly likely scenario. No. So one... you crush all of my dreams. Yes. Another thing we could try to do is reduce contamination to a level that's below the precision of our instrumentation. So in yeah. other words, be reasonably sure that the amount of stuff from Earth that is attached to a probe is so minute, there's so little of it, that it is unlikely the instrumentation aboard the probe would even detect it. So if we were to detect any organic compounds, 
it would likely be from wherever the, we sent the probe rather mm-hmm. than from Earth itself. Problem is we're getting better and better at making sensitive instrumentation. So it requires cleaner and cleaner probes to make absolutely certain that it's not an Earth-bound or Earth-originated uh, uh, organic compound that we're picking up as opposed to something from Mars or wherever. Another difficult thing to to design a test for is whether the sterilization that we've done on a spacecraft has gotten it truly clean. Um, and, and this is especially true in the 1970s. Like we're learning a little bit uh, better now, but but it's it's real hard to to test the cleanliness of an object because most lab procedures for for testing microbial contamination revolve around culturing samples of the material to see if anything grows in those lab cultures. Mm -hmm. And lots of microbes really resist being cultured in labs. I mean, I wouldn't want to reproduce in a lab either, so I understand. Uh, So so that method might not be a good indication of of what contamination we might be sending out and especially what contamination we might have sent out in the past. Now, this tells me that um, some microbes are a lot like some Atlantans. They really, really resist getting cultured. <laughs> oh. Theater jokes. Okay, so uh, if we go back to the other half of that, colonizing. Now, clearly, we've already said that just sending an unmanned probe or rover or whatever is and making certain that we do not contaminate the destination is already really hard. It's an order of magnitude harder to do that as a colonization mission, right? Right. Well, I mean, in, anywhere we go where we're going to be pooping, yeah, uh, <laughs> we will probably start to run into this problem. And, yeah. and wherever we go, let's we will, be honest, we will we're, poop. we're going to be pooping there. Yeah, yeah exactly right. Right. I mean, it, it, we're going to be eating and pooping and all sorts of doing all the human things yeah. at that because that's what humans do at that location. And unless you've created a habitat that is completely sealed off, from the surrounding environment to the point where you even begin to question, why did we come here? Right. <laughs> it's like it's like going to an exotic location and staying inside your hotel room the whole time. I mean, what's the point at that at that stage? Mm-hmm. But wouldn't that be the most hilarious conundrum? If you, So we do discover some kind of microbial life on Mars and and we're like 40 percent sure it didn't come from poop, but. It might have come from Putin, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, we, this is why we have to be thankful that The Martian is uh, just a, a work of fiction because otherwise Mark Watley ruined it for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's interesting also, this is not just the plot to The Martian. It's also uh, the plot to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, or at least part of the plot. <laughs> so stick with me here because this is actually – it's instrumental to things that happen. If it weren't for the fact that the Federation also – Wanted to make absolutely certain that any any experiments involving cre- uh, terraforming, in this case, not not colonizing or anything like that, but terraforming a planet, did not destroy any life forms at all. If it weren't for that fact, there wouldn't have been a story to the movie. Because what happens is, um, uh, Commander Pav- uh, Pavel Chekhov goes along with the crew of the USS Reliant. He is no longer part of the Enterprise crew. He's on the Reliance crew. Right, and they go to. Uh, I think SETI Alpha 5. They don't know that it's SETI Alpha 5, but they go to SETI Alpha 5, which happens to be where Khan has been uh, uh, marooned for the last several years. Yeah. Um, and strangely enough, Khan recognizes Chekhov, despite the fact that Chekhov was not part of the crew in, in Space Seed, the episode that Khan showed up in. But never mind that. At any rate, so they go, they go there because they're looking for a planet that is devoid of life in order to use it as a testing facility for the Genesis Project, which is this terraforming project, right? 
And uh, if it weren't for the idea that we have to find a lifeless planet, uh, the rest of the, the movie never would have happened. Now, granted, they actually go down, beam down to the surface of the planet to check, which might not be the best way to avoid bringing life to a lifeless planet. Oh, but- no, 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 no. Uh, by the, what, what is it, the 24th century, uh, humans no longer shed skin cells. Right, or, or poop. Or poop, or breathe, or, you yeah. know, anything like that. All the so. thing, all those organic uh, yeah. functions that we used to have. That's, yeah. that's. That's so 21st century. Yeah. So, uh, but, uh, you know, th- what happens in the, the movie, of course, is they test the Genesis project, uh, and discover that it can turn a dead planet into a lush, life-supporting world in a matter of hours, which is essentially the stuff of magic. It's, we have oh. no technology even remotely close to being able to do that. But it is interesting that it was related to the topic we're talking about right now. But that leads us to another question. Okay, uh, science fiction aside, is this something that we should actually be concerned about in the first place? Is it as big a deal as the Outer Space Treaty and these various organizations would have us believe? And that depends upon whom you ask. Yeah. You know, um, there's a uh, – Nature Geoscience ran a couple of different articles uh, on this very subject. And the first one was written by uh, Alberto G. Firen, and I'm probably butchering the names, I apologize, and Dirk Scholz Makush, who published a piece titled The Overprotection of Mars. And in that article, they argued that we're making way too big a deal about possibly contaminating the red planet. And their arguments were numerous. One of them was that uh, the, the way you said that with your tone, you make it sound like they're like, ah, what the heck? I, I mean, I, I admit, I get very poop rockets right over there. I get really cavalier in this section because uh, uh, I I don't agree with their their perspective. Oh. But I should say Ooh. that their their paper uh, is not written in the snarky tone that my notes are written in. <laughs> well, I, think, I think they make some good points. Yeah, yeah, me too. There's some there's some decent points. They say that the restrictions are making it very difficult to explore Mars, and we've said there there's a case for that the curiosity rover example is an is that that's an actual real historical example we could point to and they argue that we're holding back scientific progress in an effort to protect something that might not even be there they also say it adds to the uh, expense of these missions to make certain that the stuff we send up is sterilized um, and they say, hey, you know what? Science has shown that it's pretty plausible that life could cling to a rock that's been jettisoned into space through some event and then travel to another planet and then survive the trip down to that planet. And since that does seem to be possible, uh, it's probably true that tons of Earth microbes over the millennia have already gone to Mars through natural means. And that means – that they're already there. The Earth microbes that we're so worried about bringing to Mars have been there for millions of years. Uh, yeah, we're I mean, we've definitely found bits of what we're pretty sure are Mars stuff here on Earth resulting from what we assume were primordial impacts. There's no reason to think the bits of Earth that broke off after uh, meteors or asteroids or comets or whatever impacted us would not have similarly made their way over to Mars and to other planets in the solar system and et cetera. Uh, and, you know, maybe before the building blocks of life and or early forms of life happened here, but maybe after without a time machine that's way more advanced than the way back machine. We may never know. Yeah. Um. Also, e- even if those rock samples that we found are not bits of Mars, we're really pretty sure that like some 40 kilograms and or 88 pounds of Martian micrometeorites land here on Earth 
every year. Yeah. So so this this kind of transfer happens. Also, I mean, depending on even if we don't see it very often, when you think about it over geological time or the age of the solar system, uh, transfer of matter between planetary bodies probably happens fairly frequently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On that scale, certainly. Uh, and so if if we're imagining there's a case where uh, microbial life can be transported from one body to the other and then survive for a si- significant amount of time once it gets there, I mean, not like dying 18 hours after it arrives on Mars, Um then that's probably already happened. Yeah, yeah. And speaking about dying 18 hours after it arrives on Mars, one of the other arguments they said is, hey, Mars might really suck if you're a living thing. <laughs> like, well, that, That's almost beyond uh, a, a speculation. I mean, Mars yeah. would suck. But for life again, as we know it, Mars is crappy. Yeah, yeah. for, for, for our, our style of living. I mean, I mean I'm not a... I'm not a particularly uh, lush, luxur- luxurious kind of guy, but even for me, Mars is a little sparse for my tastes. Right. But then uh, again, we don't know. I mean, the, life finds a way. Yeah. So they, they said that if Mars is at a point where it cannot sustain Earth life, then microbes probably wouldn't survive very long on the Martian surface. Uh, ancient Earth life, assuming some had actually landed on the planet in the past, probably died out once the conditions on Mars became too hostile. It, it probably adapted for a while, and then once it reached a certain point, could no longer survive. And any life form from Earth today would die out pretty quickly due to those same conditions. So bring all the Earth life you like. It's not going to have a chance to contaminate anything. It'll die first. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, they argue, it's possible that Mars could support Earth-like life on it, and in, if in which case all that stuff that's been going uh, that we just talked about that's been going there over the geological time, yeah, it means has that already contaminated. It's it. already there, right? Mm-hmm. And that Martian and Earth life may be, may have coexisted for millions of years at this point, or it could be that one had out had, had replaced the other. That's impossible to know. I mean, there's even a hypothesis that's popular that says that uh, you know Earth life may have come from Mars. Sure. sure, it's not like we have strong evidence for this, but it's a possibility that's taken seriously. Yeah, right. Now, if you look at that argument, they're essentially saying so either. Mars can't support Earth life, in which case there's no issue, or Mars can support Earth life, in which case it's already there. So contaminating is a non-problem. Stop making us worry about it. We want to send stuff up there like crazy. Uh, then in the subsequent edition of Nature Geoscience, uh, Catherine A. Conley and John D. Rummel wrote a rebuttal mm-hmm. titled Appropriate Protection of Mars. So you can probably tell from the title that they disagreed with the previous uh, argument. They also, by the way, were part of these organizations we were talking about earlier. So, you know, they have a specific point of view on this. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, good point they might bring up here. What about science? Yeah. They said that those protective measures, while certainly uh, comprehensive, are vital if we are to understand the potential for life on Mars, as well as gain insight to the origins of life on Earth. If we do contaminate Mars with Earth life, then we never are able to answer definitively the question, Does was there life on Mars? If so, did it share a common ancestor with life on Earth? Was it in fact the ancestor to life on Earth or perhaps was Earth the ancestor to life on Mars? We wouldn't be able to answer any of those questions because we have already fouled the test results, right? Right. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, they said that 
If we don't have strong policies, then scientists end up studying their own contamination rather than anything pertaining to the actual planet or moon or whatever it may be. Yeah. So this sounds like they're uh, they're looking out for the future. I mean, the goal here is just saying, like, uh, we want to uh, to be as careful as possible to make things as friendly as possible for future research. Or or you might say, like, we decided to send this team in to see how big this forest is. And the way we're figuring it out is we're cutting it all down as we go through. <laughs> Like, well, what was the point of that? <laughs> uh, yeah, and it highlights how how we, we don't have a second chance in these kinds of experiments. Mm-hmm. It's not like if we muck up the first Mars, there's a second Mars that we can just be like, oh, just throw that one out, go, right. to, the, go to the next one. I mean, you know, and I guess the next one is like Europa or something like that. Yeah, exactly. But, but, uh, but yes, that would that would not be what I would like to call scientifically great. Well, yeah. it sounds like you've bought into that NASA shill line. You don't even accept the existence of anti-Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Mars 2. Uh, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a total anti-Mars denier. No, I've... This, this, let me this web, you, this web you, we've, we've woven is very complex. No, I'll tell you about anti-Mars sometime. Oh. It's oh. always on the exact opposite side of the sun from Earth. That's oh. why you don't see it. <laughs> I think my nose just started bleeding. Is it flat? Is it a flat planet? A flat Mars. They're all flat planets. Oh. They all float down here. So uh, this is a, th- this was one of those fun topics to kind of take a look at because it's – It's it's come up a lot before, but and we've never gone into full depth. Yeah. It. It's something mm-hmm. that we've mentioned a few times, but we really wanted to kind of explore the, the whole question further. And I I do side more on the caution – part yeah. of the equation because I think I, I do too. Yeah. I I get the frustration because we're at a stage now where we're capable of doing a lot more, more than we've ever done in the history of mankind. That the private space industry has has boosted our ability to reach destinations far beyond what the official governmental backed bodies were able to do. Mm-hmm. But we can't allow that to just turn space into a new wild west if we want to answer these questions. If we ultimately decide these questions aren't that important, then that's another factor. I will be very sad if that day comes. but uh, or, or that it's just physically impossible for us to answer them given... Uh, the constraints. Given, given the constraints, yeah, given yeah. That, that microbes are really determined to be places. And well, and, and it could even be that that... There could be microbes on Mars, but they might be in a very localized region. And unless we just happen to target that region by sheer luck, we never find it, right? That's that's a possibility. It's not necessarily likely, but it is possible that the the evidence we're looking for is uh, contained within a certain region on the planet. And, on, and that makes it even more tricky for us to get there before finally people are said, look, you had your chance. We're building a condo there. <laughs> oh, we've we've got a lot of uh, shallow frozen puddles to jump in if we're going to try to find yeah. the one with think, the microbes. I think I just came up with an idea for a movie. And it's essentially The Martian meets Break Into Electric Boogaloo, Ooh. where there's the development uh, company that wants to come in and build Martian condos. And then there's the scrappy youth group that really want to protect the pristine environment of Mars. And they do it through breakdancing. 
Your stunned I w- silence I tells me. I will be your Golden Globus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all I need you to do is promise you'll buy a ticket to the premiere. All right. So uh, that kind of wraps up this discussion. If you guys have any thoughts about this, maybe you're thinking you guys are making way too big a deal about this. Let me tell you why we should not worry about it. Or maybe you have a very uh, passionate uh, argument to protect the pristine nature of these places until we have definitively or as close to definitively as possible answered the questions we have. Write us and let us know. I want to hear your thoughts about it. Also, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, that kind of thing, get in touch with us. The email address to use is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or drop us a line on social media like Twitter, where we are FW Thinking, or Facebook, where you search FW Thinking, we'll pop up. You can leave us a message there, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.